this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So, what's your biggest question when it comes to selling your company? You know, when I ask that question of other entrepreneurs, I hear things like, how do I avoid an earnout? When's the best time to sell? How do I create a bidding war? These questions, along with many others, inspired me to write the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. I've taken all the best practices from the 300 plus interviews I've done for this show and distilled them down into an action plan for you. You can get it along with some gifts from my listeners when you go to builttosell.com slash selling. I can hear my mom's voice. She would always say a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And that was just a, a very common refrain from my mom. And I grew up with that notion in my mind, which is why I had such a fun time interviewing Frank Chinchuli about the sale of Enunciate, his teleconferencing business. He got an offer which was an enormous amount of money, yet he was also growing an uber-fast business, and he hesitated. But eventually, something happened that caused him to realize that that offer was an incredible, life-changing amount of money and that he didn't know what the future would hold. He chose to accept an acquisition offer. And as he describes in this episode, he has... Uh, built an amazing life and an amazing story after that. So look, there's lots to choose from in listening to this episode. I love the discussion around Joel, his uh, counterpart on the other side of the negotiation. He was the corporate development person at Premier Global. And we got into some of the tips and tricks that he used to try to lower Frank's defenses. I also loved the humility that Frank brought to this entire interview and the the conversation he had with his parents around the sale of his company, which I thought was really thought-provoking, and the regrets that to this day he still feels as a result of selling his baby. Here to tell you his entire story is Frank Chinchuli. Frank Chinchuli, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, John. Where on earth are you today? I We chatted before we hit record, but I think you're going to make me jealous one more time. Tell me where you are right now. I'm in my home office in uh, Miami, Florida. I'm I'm staring at uh, downtown Miami, the intercoastal, and, and, and the, uh, the ocean as well. It's a beautiful sunny day here. All right. Shut up. Make it be... <laughs> You're making me angry just thinking about it. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, congratulations on the sale of Enunciate and everything you've done uh, in your career. And, and I know it goes well beyond Enunciate. But today we've decided to talk about Enunciate, which uh, I think is your your first big success and big win. So let's talk about what is what did Enunciate do? What was the business model? Enunciate was a teleconferencing company for the most part. So audio, video, and web conferencing, um, I guess what people would consider Zoom today. Um, didn't quite have that slick technology back then. It was a little more archaic, uh, mainly over phone lines and kind of clunky uh, internet or uh, video. But uh, basically think conference calls. Yeah. 
Yeah. And simple business model. How did you sell? Like what was, who did you sell to and what was the revenue model? Yeah. So, um, so I originally had worked at Bell, Bell Conferencing and, uh, and set it to start my own. But in, in that industry, you've got the telcos and then you've got a couple of, of large players that just consolidated. They were publicly traded. So Premier Global was one. Another one is a company called Intercall. And uh, they, you know, they obviously had heard of, of our growth and they wanted a, a footprint in Canada. They're based in uh, Atlanta in the U.S. And, you know, they started to court me. So it was, rather, it was a rather lengthy courting process. Okay, sorry, you're getting into the sale of an unciate, is that right? Yeah. You know, before we go there, let me just understand um, how you guys made money at an unciate. So oh, I when I think of uh, conferencing, I think I, my head, because I'm Canadian, I think of the two big telcos here. Yeah. And I think that you, you, know, you, you got a conference call number. I remember the old days where you had like yeah. an 800 number and all that jazz. Right. So did you, you didn't like put telephone lines up and string wire everywhere across Canada, right? Like you were reselling there. Yeah. You, you would call, if you, if you will. so you had the network provider, which would be uh, bell, uh, Rogers or Telus really, or at and I think back then as well, all stream. Um, so you'd buy the, the, so the toll free from them. And then you would buy what we call audio bridges, uh, from manufacturers. And it looked like basically just uh, servers essentially. And you chart a per minute model. So um, still exists today, actually, although everyone's migrating to a Zoom or a cloud type platform. But um, you'd get a phone number and let's then you'd, you'd be charged a per minute rate. So if you had six people that were on for, you know, 60 minutes, you'd be charged, you know, 10 cents a minute times 360 minutes, a $36 call. And so what are the costs associated with this business? Since you're reselling, you don't have the capital outlay that a big telco would have, I'm assuming. Like what was the... What, well, was the, what were the costs? Well, you still would if you bought your own platform. Back then, you know, you'd make the higher margins if you had your own servers. Now, since that model, and since you had a couple of very large companies that scaled, um, they just had reseller models. So if I wanted to start my own crafting company, instead of me going out there and buying all these bridges and dealing with the telcos, I would just deal with the, a larger conferencing company and they would wholesale it for me or white label it for me. Got it. Got it. That's but helpful. back then, and I'd say we did have our own platform, so we made that capital investment. And then at that point, it's just people. You know, you have to have operators and reservations to take the reservations. If there's ever an issue on a conference call and somebody hits star zero, you know, somebody's got to answer that phone. Yeah, and you guys became one of the fastest growing companies in Canada, as I recall. It was like the Profit 100, the Profit 50. Like you were yeah. one of the fastest growing. How fast yeah. were you growing, like in terms of top line? Um. Year one, 2.2, year two, 4.5, year three, 7.5, 11.5, and then 15.5. You got those numbers committed to memory. I remember <laughs> as well. It was one of the, you know, one of the best ones. I mean, the profit was heavy too. So it was, it's a very uh, lucrative business. Well, so now, let me unpack that. So you're saying 15% top line revenue growth? Um, well, at least that, yeah. 2.2, 4.5, yeah. Got it. So you're not, so, okay. So you're growing, uh, the, you're growing over obviously a, a period of time. How did you finance the growth? What was the capital structure? Well, we did that, you know, when we first started, we did the whole friends and family thing, uh, very conservative and just started bootstrapping it, you know, two guys in a 10 by 10 office and just really started literally pounding the phone selling. Uh, for the most part, people pay and they pay quickly. And that business is like a utility. It's not you know, crazy expensive. Conference calls are important. So we'd get paid really quickly. And then we just started uh, hiring other salespeople as, as we grew. So you had a partner? 
Uh, yeah, we had, uh, we had, we had a partner and, uh, yeah, I mean, I bought him out later, but yeah, we had a partner. What triggered the buyout? Uh, well, cause we had the whole, we did the whole co-CEO thing. And, uh, you know, because we started scaling fairly quickly, like we grew to, we grew to over hundred employees relatively quick, you know, from a thing that started with two guys in a, in a 10 by 10 office. Um, and you're moving, you're adding offices and you're expanding offices. All that's happening very quickly. Um, you're making a lot of money. Um, so there's, you know, there's things that go wrong in a business and when, when it hits financial hardships that, you know, partners fight, it also happens when, when things are going really well. What did you guys fight over? Uh, I wouldn't say that we fought necessarily in my case. I just felt that, the, you know, the ship needed one, one captain, if that made any sense. And because of the demographics of the business, you know, we're in Liberty Village and a loft and a lot of young, young testosterone in that office. I was younger. My partner was 16 years my senior. And um, I just, it, just wasn't, it just wasn't working out. You know, so it was either, okay, have difficult conversations about, okay, you got to do this and I do this and I just, or I just want to run it now. You know, I've been building it. I want to run it. And uh, it worked out. You know, he took his money and started his own company, Australia, moved to Australia. You know, he surfed with the sun every day. It turned out to be a a great story all around. Sounds great. How did you value the company for the purposes of breaking up with the partner? Um, Well, it was, you know, he wanted to be purchased. So it was more of just what we felt we could afford, you know. At the time. Do you mean what you thought the company could afford? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I you know, if you wanted a big number that I couldn't afford to do, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, so it was, the negotiation was very much what I felt the, com- the company or my comfort level of taking the cash out to them as opposed to not stifling the company's growth. Did you have a sense as you grew, like what it might be worth? Like, when did you, like, did you have, were you thinking it might be a multiple of revenue or a multiple of EBITDA? Like, did yeah. you start to think about those kinds of things at all? I, I did. I did. I remember even telling him, he was like, listen, I don't want you to work in the company, but you're still a shareholder. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, especially owner operators becomes ego. Um, you know, you wear three hats in a business, your employee, your shareholder, and then your board a board member. Those are, those are distinct. They're different. So I remember telling him, don't, don't, like, I don't think you should sell. We're going on a great path. We're, we're making, we're going to have tons of dividends. You're going to get dividends, lots of them. <laughs> I didn't, you know, what's the big deal of the salary, you know, in the role, but I think it was just an, you know, I think he was hurt and he just figured, oh, I want out. If I'm not going to be part of this, then I want out. Um, under, I mean, all the negotiations was me saying, just don't sell, don't, don't sell it. And then it turned out we ended up obviously selling the company for a much bigger multiple couple of years afterwards, but he didn't seem to be upset about that. Yeah. 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 It's funny. It's something that comes up a lot in, in conversations with, with other guests where there's a big gap in age where mm-hmm. it, it, you know, I can think of one uh, example where the older entrepreneur uh, kind of just was at a different stage, right? Like they didn't want to take a lot of risk. They wanted to slow down. They wanted yeah. to kind of diversify their wealth and, and feel kind of secure. Mm-hmm. And the younger one is like, let's go, you know, take on the world. It, it, was there a dynamic uh, uh, yeah, like that going on? For sure. For sure. Yeah. How, how big a company were you at that time in terms of top line revenue? Uh, when I did the buyout, um, so it would have been uh, 2004. Yeah, so that year we did 7.5 million in revenue and like, I don't know what it was, but three and a half in profit. Got it. So you took some of that profit and paid him out basically over yeah. time, I'm assuming? Well, over, over some time too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't have to take on any 
debt to do that? Or- no, we did it, uh, did it through cash flow. And then um, when the company sold a couple of years later, I still owed him money. So he got paid that out all at once. So I think that's why he was also happy. <laughs> he was happy to right, see Because then right away, I know he was planning it, but then right away after that check, he was off to Australia and he started a company and very successful. He's they've done great. Which is, which that's is great. Story all around. And so did the relationship soured, which was a shame because we're, you know, we're good friends building a business. It was nothing personal. It just, I felt, I felt, uh, you know, I needed to run the company. I was anyway, and it was just getting a bit awkward. He had a bit, you know, employees tend to, if they don't like the answer from one partner, they'll go to the other one. There's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Yeah. They choose sides, right? And they're, <laughs> they're either Frank's guys or they're, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So as you grow, you start to really accelerate any outside investors. Did you, did you look at bringing in outside investors? Did you have outside investors? For yeah. Years? So what, yeah. So what happened was when we did a friends and family round, um, we had a, a, a gentleman who became the, the partner was a 20 lack of air. He was, uh, he had a company called global live. We've so had I him met. on the show actually. Oh, there you go. So yeah, I met, yeah. so, okay. So the, if you want to know the history of Tony, yeah, um, he was, you know, grinding it out. He was three years into global at that time. I don't think they were even making money. They're probably still burning. Uh, he's 26. I'm 27. I pitch him on this idea because I could, I saw he already had infrastructure, he had operators and stuff like that. So I thought, okay, we could double down. And it was valuable having Tony as a mentor just because he had walked through the minefield first. That's, I think that's also what helped, uh, you know, just get, I mean, we listened, we worked really hard and sold a lot, sold a lot. That's why we, we grew. But ultimately having that kind of guy that, had the governance, um, you know, and, and had made the mistakes beforehand that helped. And ultimately what happened was between, well, I guess at that point, Global Life is the actual company. Um, we did the, the, the buyout. So it became just him and I at the end. Got it. So he kicked in some money at that stage, yeah. a similar early, stage. Where early, then he bought out all the shareholders and he bought, and we bought out uh, Jeff. We had another minority partner too that, that, uh, wanted, that we, sold, we bought out as well. Like basically how, just one. it was our first like sales director. How did you value the company for the purposes of selling to the a portion of it to Tony Lacavero? What was that? Like, did you guys have a, again, a valuation? Yeah, a, multi- a multiple of EBITDA, but it's, it's so tricky when a company's growing. I got hockey stick growth, right? Cause you know, but at the same time, you've got to, you got to deal with what you got and what you've accomplished and what the company can afford. Um, and it's a minority stake. So there's always a discount there. Um, you know, you don't have any power. Somebody buys in a minority stake, what, you know, they can't influence the business. So, so, so that's interesting. So, for that. so you would pay less for shares in a company mm-hmm. where you were the minority shareholder. Yeah. Oh, that's my rule of thumb always. Interesting. I've never heard sure, that. All the shareholder agreement, all that stuff. At the end of the day, if you're not active in the business, you're not, you're not going to know what's really going on. Yeah, and so as as investor, you're not gonna you're not gonna pay a, a, a such a premium as if you had control. Mm-hmm. That's your, you know what I've done this show for 300 episodes. I've never heard that notion before. It's really wow. interesting. Yeah, either I'm dumb or slow learner. <laughs> <laughs> you're pretty smart. Um, if folks want to listen for the the episode with Anthony Lacavera, it's probably just type in. Uh, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes at Built to Sell, but it was maybe a year and a half or two years ago. And, and we talked a little bit about Win Mobile, which was a company he yeah. built and exited, I think, a billion dollar valuation at the end of the day, which is a huge, massive exit. Yeah. 
Billion set. Yeah. So, so great story if you're into that stuff. Good. Okay. So we got Anthony Lacavera on board as a, it sounds like a, I don't want to say silent partner because I'm sure he was involved, but he wasn't an operating partner. Is that right? No, he wasn't operating. He was, he was operating Global Eye, but we, you know, we spoke every day and we'd meet once a week formally that, you know, like management reviews. So he was still, that was his first venture outside of his, of what he did. You refer to him as a mentor. Is it like, was it weird to have a mentor relationship with a guy the same age? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, maybe mentor is the wrong word, but no, I mean, it really was, you know, it really was from a perspective of business and building the, from that context. Now, you know, so when I think mentor, I think uh, life and business, you know, almost like a life coach as well, especially when you think of maybe a, someone who's your senior, <laughs> you know, is at a different stage in life and, teach you about balance. This was strictly business. This is what about, okay, entrepreneurialism 101, building a business 101. Um, you know, he had, he had made a bunch of mistakes, whether it was dealing with receivables and all that kind of stuff, right? So we got ahead of a lot of things uh, to ensure we didn't get stung with bad debt and, uh, you know, any kind of uh, employee issues and HR, HR matter matters that a lot of companies might, you know, um, learn as they go and make a bunch of mistakes. We were just able to put a lot of, um, you know, uh, policies, procedures, and processes in place to avoid a lot of those kind. Of, I mean, you're still always going to have challenges, but we were able to mitigate a lot of them. Got it. Uh, because Got he was it. always there to someone talk to. And if even not, not always only him, but even I had access to his full management team because, you know, Global Life was the partner itself as a company. So, um, you know, I could call the CFO and their, their, their IT people uh, often. Oh, I see. So Anthony personally didn't invest in the company. It was, it was Global Life, his business. Well, he did it first, then the company. Um, actually became so it became kind of me and, and global live as a company got it got um, it so th at this time you're roughly seven and a half top line seven and a half eight million top yeah. line and at then, this stage and then we and then we doubled uh two years after that and we went from seven and a half to fifteen and a half so that's from seven and a half eleven and a half fifteen and a half and, uh, and after so the bio so we had great momentum Oh, you know what? I, I, you know, I wrote down four and a half, seven and a half, 15 and a half. And I thought you were referring to your percentage of growth. And I'm like, that's actually slower. No, than no, I no. Thought. That's top. I'm that's with you in revenue. Yeah. 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 Uh, forgive me. I, I, I wrote that down right. I wrote percentage and I'm like, that's, I'm surprised it was, I wasn't growing fa faster. Just given how big you got, how fast <laughs> you got. Got it. I'm with you now. So you double in two years, you're at 15 and a half. What triggered you to want to sell? I, I, so I didn't. So the, the, I mean, these guys were good. So, uh, Premier Global, publicly traded, started doing a bunch of acquisitions. Um, you know, they were public market. Um, so they're, you know, they would look at what their stock price is and say, okay, they're trading at, you know, whatever it was, 10, 15 times um, profit. Hey, if we can buy companies at five or six, we get an immediate lift. Um, so they they came courting. And uh, yeah, I'm not interested. I was growing so quickly. I was having the time of life. You know, for me, operating a business was a dream come true. It was better than a lottery because, I mean, the money was good, but it was more so. I found my purpose. I found something I'm good at in life. Um, the energy was was was. I, I woke up every morning excited, you know. But you have your bad days. But it came a couple of times, and the one time he made sure he brought me, and I said, "Okay, you're literally going to take you to an expensive restaurant." I started making these guys really pay. And we were <laughs> Where'd you take him? We're at Canoe, you know, Canoe. So Canoe for folks overlook, overlooking Lake Ontario, and he says, "Yeah." Um, and this is what got me. I didn't. I didn't really ever really ask you know, price or anything. And he says, he goes, so and I just, I'm not, I'm not just selling. I love business. He goes, yeah, okay. He goes, but you could do many other. And I already had started other businesses. And I think that's the main reason I sold, by the way. 
because uh, I already had started other companies and they were growing very quickly as well. But he said, I don't understand. Why wouldn't you, like, why would you not want to put 30 million bucks in your bank? And I says, pardon, 30? <laughs> that was like, I remember right on my way back calling Tony going, Tony, so they're talking like 30. And he's like, well, we got to look at that then. And I think the official LOI at that time was 33. And then we had kind of lost that account. And then through the negotiations, it got down to 30. But that number was kind of like, uh, and I learned a lot about how to buy companies from that, from what kind of realizing what worked on me. You know, people, even if they're not interested in selling, once you actually put put it in writing and they maybe talk to their partners or spouses or, you know, then and psychologically it starts to, <laughs> starts to get interesting. You start spending the money in your head. And now when you have a bad day at work, you think, hey, I got an offer. Maybe I should sell. So it's a real psychological warfare, I think, um, when you're negotiating with a business. Because a home is different. You have to actually, you know, usually, you know, list your home. You've decided you want to sell a home. But imagine if fairly often people knock on your door. You don't want to sell your house. You love your house. Yeah. But once he throws out a number, then what? A business is like that because people contact you even if you're not officially for sale. I love this. I love this story. I want to spend some time here. So uh, for folks who don't know, Canoe is a very fancy restaurant uh, at the top of one of the bank towers in downtown Toronto. It looks out over Lake Ontario and like hamburgers are $56 or something like that. Like it's a very fancy place. So I'm glad you took him there, which is great. Or he took you there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you're at Canoe and tell me a little bit about the conversation. Like what it, like it, it was the auspices of the meeting set up under the auspices that they wanted to acquire you. Were you aware going into that lunch that that was the nature of the conversation was going to be about? Yeah, I mean, you know, this this guy, his name, I forget his name, was Joel Hewitt, and he was just very good at his job. So he, this his sole job was out there, you know, finding finding companies to buy and going through the whole courting. And it's a courting process. I mean, it really is. When they flew me down, even to visit them, you know, I get to my hotel room and there's a big, you know, fancy gift basket with you know two hundred dollars scotch in it, the whole bit. I mean. Um, and, you know, so, so oh, he was coming to town anyway and just wanted to, let's just get caught up. And then just, you so know, he didn't like make it a big deal. He's like, Hey, we're just coming. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm going to be in Toronto. <laughs> was he, the he line. Several different tactics were, it seemed as if they, I guess they, they had a feeling for this, the size and how quickly we were growing. And they saw us on the, on the you know, we're winning a bunch of awards. So, and that's why I do encourage entrepreneurs to always, you know, go for those awards, was the best places to work or best manage or fastest growing. All that kind I think 5,000 is, people, a, is yeah, a big one. A lot. Yeah. Because if you definitely, if you want to see, uh, if you want to, to raise your profile or just, you know, someone to read on, read about you. So they, they kind of got a sense for our growth. So they wanted something that was a good, a, a good sales engine. And again, they wanted, you know, because it wasn't much in Canada really besides the telcos. So, so let's go back. So Joel's like, Hey, I'm coming to Toronto. Maybe we can have lunch. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh, okay. So you have, you sit down with Joel, then what, what, oh, what does, I mean, how does the conversation go? I mean, he's asked me about business and you guys doing a great job. I says, yeah, we're, we're, we're killing it. You know, like we're growing. I mean, two years ago, I was at seven and a half making whatever it was. Um, and then, you know, so every month that goes by, you're, you're, you're growing. Every time you see, I mean, I, I'll never forget every, and sometimes it's the opposite of business when you're struggling, but every month, you know, the financial review was so much fun because it was, it was just the company was always growing. There was always more profit. So what are you putting on the bottom that, line? When you're in that space and you have a real business, you know, and you can just take those profits out and, and, and you're still investing, you're still growing regardless of even taking money out. Uh, well, at that time we did a shareholder bio, but, um, you know, you're not, I, at least me, I wasn't thinking about selling. I mean, things were going great. 
Just to be clear, you're 15 on the top line. What would you have been putting to the bottom line at that time? Ballpark. So we, yeah, so we did on 15, it was actually like the last fiscal year. Then it was, the, it was like, yeah, five, five and a half of, of EBITDA on, on 15. Right? And so how thirsty is the company? Like, are so five and a half, you and Anthony owning the business, are you able to suck any of that cash out and put it in your pocket? Or are you having to reinvest it all in the growth? No, no, that's, that's profit, right? So we're, we're growing at a big clip, even, I mean, looking back, maybe we could have thrown, thrown more money at it and grown even more. Like when I look back at that, but then we also had the shareholder buyouts, right? So we had cash, we had checks going out every month to the shareholder. You're, you're paying it, the guy in Australia and yeah. Yeah. So Joe, I love this. So Joel's, you're having this conversation with Joel and, and how does he, he kind of pivot the conversation to the discussion around acquisition? Like, do you remember what his line was or how he sort of raised the specter of an acquisition? Well, you know, he was, t- I mean, I, and I knew, I could see the press releases. I knew they were buying. I knew they were buying. They were uh, you know, a bit of a, a war path as far as sales. So, I mean, you know, and you're getting to know him. You're getting to know me. We're, we're both wine guys. We're doing, we're having all those conversations. And then when I, when I think he had asked me, okay, so what is it looking like this year as far as your numbers? And I think when I told him, or we had just did four and a half in profit, I think uh, that prior year. And he says, well, he goes, well, why would you, you know, why, why, why wouldn't you not want to put 30 million bucks in your, in your, in your pants? I said, 30 million dollars. I, I guess I didn't really think of multiples. Um, you know, but I think even if I knew five or six times, you know, I don't know, as an entrepreneur, I was just so focused on growing the business. I didn't actually think, and that number just sounded big. You know, I was, you know, I was it sounds three, massive. Three, three and a half years ago, I was at Bell Canada, you know, as a, you know, a sales rep. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And so you know, I'm living in a small condo in square one. And now, you know, now someone's talking about $30 million. Whoa. I mean, it wouldn't, wasn't all mine half, but still. Yeah, but so he he says, why wouldn't you want to put thirty million dollars? That was his shot over the bow yeah, to yeah. say that's kind of what we would be yeah, willing to pay for. Exactly, exactly. And so once I once I realized it was that kind of, then we're like, okay, let's let's talk. <laughs> and so, did you basically take the calculation back in your mind and go, okay, thirty million? We're doing roughly five. Yeah. Did you did you do the six times EBITDA number in your yeah. mind? It's yeah. at, at, at lunch, you're doing that in your, in your mind. Yeah. And then obviously after when we started to chatting with Tony, it was a matter of, you know, okay, so we're going to keep making all this cash. Like do we need to sell? It became a question of, okay, like, and I think this is like what every entrepreneur thinks. Okay. Well, I can just keep going. Why would I sell? Especially when you're growing. So this is why I, I mean, I know it's maybe not relevant in this conversation, but I do regret selling. I don't think it, I don't think it made sense to sell at that time. I think I could have went at least uh, three to five years longer. Um, just because of the trajectory, but you don't know that you don't know that even if you have been growing toxic growth, you don't know that it's going to continue to grow. And then I remember having some bad days, like post that kind of canoe meeting, because from that canoe meeting to sell was at least a year, maybe a year and a half. There's something like that. It was, it took, it took a while. Um, well, I'd say at least, at least a year it was probably 14, uh, 15 months. So you have your bad days. And when you have those bad days, you're like, oh, maybe I should sell. Maybe I should sell. Then you have a great day or a great month or a big win. And then you're like, ah, oh, forget it. I want to keep going. It's, it's, it's really psychological. I mean, it's, uh, you know, then, then, you know, people are talking bird in hand. You start telling friends or maybe some close friends. And their reaction is always like, oh, I got to sell. I think the only person, you know, that said, oh, no, just keep it. It was my dad. <laughs> 
oddly enough. You know, just you have a good business, why do you sell it? And I, and I've, I continue on that. You know, I, I don't ever, I don't think it makes sense to sell a good business. That's that's generating good cash flow. The Warren Buffett, right? The buy and hold. He sells businesses when he no longer feels or feels you can put apply the capital somewhere else to get a better lift. But if it's your passion and it's your baby and you're good at it, you know, there's a lot of factors that come in with businesses. What was the conversation like with your dad? Tell me more about that. So um, how did, I mean, was he an informal mentor of yours that you went yeah. to for counsel? And, and tell me about that conversation. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, he wasn't sophisticated as far as understanding valuations or things like that. But, I, you know, I did give him the roughly how much, you know, we're making and, you know, what these guys want. What did that feel like to tell your dad that someone was willing to write you a check for well, $30 for million? Dollars? Definitely sweet. That and when I started winning the awards, because um, like I, that whole Bell Canada thing, I, uh, I did that. I, that was a summer job while I was in, in uh, well, wrapping up my last year of university. I was supposed to be a lawyer. My dad has been brainwashing me since I was like 12 to be a lawyer. And I had the blinkers on. I was going to be a lawyer. And then when I, when I go work for this conferencing company and, and it was lucrative, you know, and I was doing well at it. So it felt good uh, that I was good at something. So then I remember telling him, listen, dad, don't worry about the law school thing. I'm going to put that off, but I think I'm going to start my own conferencing company. So then I finally did. And then when I'm, you know, in a relatively short period, you're talking about three, three and a half years after starting a company, so someone's talking $30 million. Um, you know, that, that, that was kind of, that was a good moment from, from that perspective. I, I thought he'd have a different reaction. I thought he'd be like, oh, that's it. Great. So let's go. This is good. Let's retire. He's like, nah, keep it, keep it. <laughs> have good business. Keep going. Oh my God. Oh God. What did your dad do for a living? What was his profession? So he was like, he was, a, he was actually a mechanic by trade when he was younger, but he, uh, in the, uh, I guess around 1980, got his, got his real estate license and did, uh, and did relatively well. Ended up having his own brokerage and, you know, ended up buying a lot of land and that brought my mom into it. And she ended up uh, buying a lot of properties. So they were entrepreneurs. I was an only child. Um, so, but he, you know, he was maybe because of that blue collar background, you know, he's lawyer, lawyer, you know, he was thinking lawyer. Um and uh, so I, you know, so once we, I think one, one of the most proudest day of both of their lives when I won the Entrepreneur of the Year, I mean, that was, that was a fabulous uh, evening and an experience. I mean, it, it felt like even more than when I got married and had my first kid, if you want. Like, I don't know. Don't tell your wife that. No, I know. But I just, <laughs> something tells me they're really, really, I mean, yeah, everybody has a kid. Not everybody's Entrepreneur of the Year, if you want to put it in that perspective, right? Like, I mean, yeah. both were married. So this was a big thing for them. I think being you know, coming back from, coming from humble backgrounds and, you know, an only child and, you know, they, 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 they tried to do everything right. Like, you know, they didn't they put me in, in private school and then when they had the ability, my dad bought me a, you know, brand new Volkswagen Jetta at six, you know, instead of going to like away to university, they didn't want me to go away. I was the only, I was the only child. So I think, I think they were just so proud or justified that they, Hey, you know what yeah, we did, we did good. We did good with this guy. You know, we raised them well. <laughs> It's a great story, and uh, and it must make them incredibly proud. And and I and I wonder, was there any, you know, dads and sons have complicated relationships. I mean, books have been written on it. On, on, it goes well beyond my pay grade to even think about that. But there is a sense of, uh, at least in some relationships, a, su a subtle sense of competitiveness, right? Where you want to. I, you know, I'll think of my own relationship with my dad. Like, there's a little bit of like, I, I want to do him proud, right? I want, I want him to feel proud of me. You know what I mean? And yeah. And at I, the same time, 
Yeah, keep going. No, I want no, I wonder that too. You know, I, I get the sense that I mean my dad, it was interesting, my dad and my mom, because both between both of my mom was always working hard and hustling, hustling, hustling. I want to get bigger and bigger and bigger and competitive. So I got that. My dad also successful, a little more conservative. She was more of a risk taker. Um, he was way more conservative and he he always stressed lifestyle too. Like don't kill yourself working, you know. Um, and even to this day, I like the way I structured after I sold let's say it was only a company I ever operated. Now I mean I've had have i don't know how many operating companies i've got presidents and management teams that run it i'm here in miami you know i'm able to be away so because i think my dad's influence as far as just making sure you you smell the roses along the way otherwise what are we doing with all this for and you know and there was a badge of honor when i was first building businesses and i'd look at you know you know guys that would work hard until their 90s or 100 and work in seven days a week and it's like yeah i like that i like the concept of you know loving what you do and always working which i think i always will do but at the same time these guys, like, then they, they, on their deathbeds, they're all having the same regrets. You know, didn't spend enough time with family. Didn't, you know, didn't enjoy all the riches. I mean, what's the point of doing it if it's just ego? I mean, I used my sure. ego to, to grow it. But now, now I'm on the, you know, I, I'm at a different stage. I, I, I want to get wealthier, but I don't want to kill myself doing it. You know, so if I can't generate enough momentum or, or work with light operators, I wouldn't do it. So, so I think that's where I got that from my dad. But yeah, I, I think one of the regrets or maybe because of the stage in life, but <clears throat> maybe to do something with him. You know, like a vacuum on a venture, but he, I think he was at that point done. My mom, I think, would have unfortunately, I sold Enunciate in the fall of uh, 06, and she died exactly two, year, two years later, tragically. Oh, just, sorry, uh, yeah, no cancer, uh, relatively young, 57. But I, I probably oh. would have uh, done some type of ventures, probably real estate related with my mom. Neat that, uh, that she was able to see the success you had had um, before yeah. she passed. That's uh, that's pretty special. I, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy about that, to be honest, because I think, I think that I, I just I, I could just that those those could you know, go on the award circuits right? it was a period of a, I don't know, a year or two where the universities give me an award and the Italian, you know, Italian chambers give me an award and the top 40 under 40. So so yeah, every every few months there's a big gala and you know, black tie. And <laughs> yeah. And so it's it was really it was a really wonderful experience. I'm definitely glad. that. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of those. Uh, even though, you know, that at the end of the day, the, the reward is the money and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I don't know, something about validation is, is fun. And not, not only for, for the owner or the entrepreneur, but the, the whole the whole company. Uh, yeah, sure. It Basically it, it, a team effort. Makes people feel great about the place they work. I want to go back to the deal for a second. So, so you're at lunch at Canoe. Joel says, why, why wouldn't you want to put 30 million bucks in your jeans? Were you able to keep a straight face when he said that? Yeah, 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 yeah I did. Um, I, I did, you know, it's, it's, we don't need the money. We're still growing that kind of stuff. But, uh, but secretly, I'm like, huh, that's, that, that just sounded so big to me. I'm not sure why. I mean, yeah. You know, well, I know why. It's a huge, very lotto, it's a huge lotto, very lotto 649 feeling, you know, it, it was a. I had such the blinkers on, like I, I was so focused on building the business. I, I, ironically, though, when we used to talk about starting a, our own company, from because from, from the moment we decided we wanted to start a, a company, from actually starting it, it was five years. Hmm. You know, I'm a history poli sci major. I know nothing about writing business plans, raising capital, none of that stuff. You know, so it wasn't until I met Tony Lacavera and he knew all that. Uh, that it all came together quickly, but we were ready to go. So once we met Tony, we we, we put it all together really quickly, and and we knew we were gonna we were gonna execute. Um, 
so I was just so focused on just growing the company that I, uh, that I, you know, but I didn't remember that back when we were planning, we said, oh, we'll grow it for five years, sell it, retire, you know, or do something else. But it was ironic that it was exactly five years. We started in August, we started August of 2001 and the sale was September of 06, 61 wow. months. Let's, so let's get into incredible growth. So let's get into what happens next. So you leave Canoe. Who do you call first? Tony on the way back to the office. <laughs> and what's his reaction? Um, oh, so he's, he's, he's like, Oh, okay. So I think that realized he realized, okay, this is real. Um, but you know, then we started that Tony's more analytical, more, he doesn't have an emotional connection to the business, but that, but so he looks at more just dollars and cents, but he does understand that I do have an emotional connection to the business. So he, I remember him saying to me and I was, and then when I got to the office, I was even waiting in the parking lot, right. And when I called him, I'm going to the office. And I remember exactly where I was in the parking lot of my building, Liberty Village, where he said, you know, like building a business is fun. And he goes, we got like, we're past it. We're making money. He goes, so yeah, he goes, some guys like managing their money after they sell and, but they're older, we're young. He goes, so you got to think about that. He's like, like, you know, like this, this is, you're enjoying this. This is, this is fun. And uh, so that's what stuck with me. That's, that was hard. Then things changed. And Tony, you know, they were looking at buying Yak Communication. And I know that they needed the money from the sale to be able to complete that. I mean, I'm, Tony's would have figured something out anyway, but they needed that money. Um, Sorry, forgive I, me. So Tony, I, oh, uh, just, just want to make sure I understand. So Tony was looking at, at Global Live, was looking to make an acquisition. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yak Communication was okay. The block. They, I don't know, Global Life was far smaller uh, and weren't capitalized enough to buy that business. And okay. If, if they were to do it, they'd have to bring on partners in equity. So, so he, he wants to big from the unsaid sale that they, that that helped them close. Even then, was a, was a miracle they pulled it off, even with all that capital. Okay, so for, so for folks listening, they may not have heard of Yak or whatever. So, yeah. I, that makes sense. So, so, so part of it sounds like your partner this. Anthony mm-hmm. Lacavarich said, Hey, you got to think about this. Like you don't want to just sit on the beach. There's a lot mm-hmm. of excitement. And, yeah. and then you became aware that he would have liked the pros like to use some of the proceeds from the sale of enunciate in order to buy. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's why, but, but just to clarify, that's why, you know, that's why I respected uh, Tony so much because, you know, he, he kept them separate. I remember saying that, okay, well, you want to buy this, you know, so you, you know, we should sell enunciate. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, let's treat everything separately. This is enunciate and let's, let's decide whether this is something he goes, ultimately it's your call for me. Like, but I'll support you whatever you want to do. But he was more, okay, this is how much profit we're making. So let's think about this. If we go three more years at this level. And so, you know, we get, we'll take whatever it is, 10, 12 out of the business. Uh, then what's the business worth? Is it going to be declined? You know, so he was, he brought a very analytical approach to it from as far as the numbers and he, and he, and he kept them separate. He says, I, I like to keep every, every deal separate. I don't know if that's true, but, but that's what he, that's what he said to me. Right. So part, so the, the kind of conversation you guys are having in your mind is we're, we're able to pull out a, a chunk of change every year because we're so yeah. profitable. We don't have to invest in CapEx. Yeah. So we just keep growing this thing for, so one option was to continue to grow, continue to pull profits out, and it may be worth even more than 35 years yeah. down the road. That was one. Plus option. you have the cash. Yeah, I think that's what made us unique. I mean, I think a lot of companies, even if they have rocket growth um, and then they get a big multiple, like they haven't been taking cash out. So, you know, as a, a, you have fatigue. Let's say you're the, you're the owner operator, even though your business is worth 30 million bucks, but what if you haven't taken any money out? And you're, you're still driving the Jetta. Yeah, you're still driving the Jetta, exactly. <laughs> 
Um, so I, I think that was what was different. And I think that's why uh, looking back, we shouldn't have sold, you know, because, but then I thought, okay, I'd have all this money to do all this stuff. And obviously I bought a place in Florida and you know, build a big house, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Um, but I would be able to do that anyway through the cash flow. But you don't know that for sure when you're in it either, right? That's the, yeah. Well, that's, I think people that's listening why to I, if anyone's a purchaser or wants to buy businesses, just make the offer. No one's going to tell you they want to sell. Just put it in writing and you'll see what happens. <laughs> that's a good pro tip. People start spending the money once it's on paper. Once it's on paper. Same thing happened with Joel. He 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 submitted an LOI. Once it became on right, I, I printed it, I kept it, I showed people my family, friends, right? Um, before that was just talk, you know. But once once it was in writing in a formal LOI, things changed. Then it then it then then it got in my head. Yeah. Yeah. So he left lunch. How long after lunch at Canoe did Joel present you with the letter of intent? Um, it, it came relatively quickly. Um, I mean, not days, but at, at least um, not much longer than two or three weeks. And, Got then, it. He, and then he flies me down to, to visit Atlanta. Then the whole team comes out and steaks and expensive wine. <laughs> These guys were crazy wine guys. We spent thousands of dollars on wine at, at dinner. So now, so now they're pitching, you know, being part of their family as well, right? They, part of the deal is they needed to be there for at, at least, uh, it was 16 months. We sold in September. They wanted to make sure I stayed at least until the end of the, the, the following year. What was your reaction to the wanting and dining? Um, I thought this could be a nice transit. I knew because I had other ventures that I knew I wouldn't work for these guys. I'm, I'm not going to work for someone else. I mean, the, the money was too big. I think if guys sell their businesses and it's not you know money where they can retire off and then whoever, you know, you might want to look at working with the company that buys you, but not, no, not my case. I had other ventures making great money and, 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 and obviously a bunch of money in the bank. So I didn't need to work there, but I thought, Hmm, this is a cool transition. These guys are going to do all kinds of fun stuff to talk about these, you know, management retreats and Pebble Beach and all these places. I'm like, this is great. I remember, you know, after I sold the business and I worked there for the year and a half, and you know, they are in Atlanta. So they had their own private booth and the coach and went to the masters. So they, they brought me to the masters. I, I, had, I had quite a few cool experiences working with these guys for the, for the year I was there. So you're getting wined and dined mm -hmm. in Atlanta. You're going to the masters. You're, you know, it's, it's a pretty special time. I've heard from some entrepreneurs that, they they get their um, sort of defenses lowered by the booze at the special dinners and so yeah. forth, and towards the end of dinner, you know some of the conversation turns to deal points, and they end up thinking about the dinner after the fact, thinking, "Oh man, I shouldn't have said X or I shouldn't have done Y." Did anything like that come up yes. for you? Yes, yes, it did. All all of the above, um, you know, because and this is when I realized um, that. At least when it's done well, because um, that takes energy and a lot of companies don't do that. Go through a broker and it's just all, you know, maybe they'll get on a call and then, you know, offers will start flying. That's, you know, that's not the best way to do to do it. If you're, if you want to be successful making acquisitions, you have to build the relationships with the, uh, with the potential vendor, uh, with the owner of the company, essentially. And because, you know, normal, think normal sales, people do business with people they like. So people don't want to sell a company to someone they don't like. And you don't want that to happen, even if it's sure. a good deal, because they're going to leave it in rough shape or they're, you know, they're not going to, you don't know what you're buying after the fact, because you want a good relationship even after, even, if, you know, if, even if the person's not, especially if the person's not going to be active in the business. 
So yeah, the wine starts flowing and you start, you know, you're talking about life and they're, so they're learning about you. They're learning your, your, your little trigger points and that that's important. You know, and I, same thing I, I do when talking to people about selling business. I what did they understand what they want to do with the money, with their families. What did they, what's their hobbies? They're going to go buy a boat. What are they going to do with it? You know, that kind of thing. Got it. Got it. And so as in retrospect, what might you have done differently with that dinner? Um, I mean, I knew they wanted the company badly. So if, if it was a matter of maybe trying to make a few extra bucks on the deal, uh, I think just hold my cards a little, little, little tighter because then, you know, you start talking about, cause it, it became a lot of talk about how, what life would be like for me post-sale that I'd still be in Canada doing my own thing. There'll still be an NCA with all the same employees, but wow, you're going to be part of, you know, in your case, in my case, I was going to be reporting directly to the CEO and with that C-suite where other acquisitions weren't just because they wanted to treat Canada like a different region. There was one other entrepreneur that bought his business in Australia that would be on that team, but everyone else, no, right? And, and But I'd have this special treatment and we would do these fun things. So they gave me a taste of it, you know, when, when we're out there and having nice dinners and, and, and you know, because you're hearing them tell stories. Uh, stories, oh, and they're in Pebble Beach and they did this. Oh, and they're at, you know, at, at this conference or at that conference. They'd go to great places. Like really great in, places. In, in retrospect, now, given how sophisticated you are about this stuff, do, is it clear to you that they were uh, they were dropping Pebble Beach and mentioning, yes. you know, it, with, all by with intent, all by yeah. design? Yeah, and I'm a pretty street smart guy, so I can usually pick it off. That's why I say this guy was good at what he did. He was just a nice guy regardless, just a good quality you know, human being. So, you know, it, he was just good at his job, you know? Um, yeah. Where does it go from there? I mean, did you try to get competing offers or what was, what was no. the next step? Uh, well, you know, we did. And I think that's what helps. I think it was TELUS actually. And they just gave us a real low ball and uh, well, comparable, comparably anyway. And, uh, and that's, so that, at that point we just focused on, 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 on premier. Did you use the TELUS offer in an effort to, to, to kind of get Premier up a bit? Uh, no, the negotiations was really just about comparing because they would show us um, all the acquisitions like for the previous five years that were completed, not only by them, but just in the industry. And they had the whole formula which showed the, you know, the multiples. And so they were showing that their offer was already on the high end or the highest <laughs> end of that bracket so it really made it tricky but we still pushed it you know oh, we can still run it the cash plus our trajectory we don't know what the trajectory of those companies were if you buy a company at the same multiple of mine but they've been flat versus i'm growing at 50 percent a year you can't that's irrelevant then you know so these are the kind of arguments and negotiating we were doing what was their original letter of intent at was it right on the 30 million i was like 33 uh, the first LOI, and then it came. It came down. We had. This is another reason why we sold. We had. Uh, we had some uh, some technical issues, and we had uh, you know a few accounts leave. We got over them, but we. But, and then it's like, okay, what do we do? Do we wait and not sell, and wait to just get back up? Because um, they had to adjust it down. You know, one of the accounts was significant. I don't How know, much revenue do you remember? A dollar a year in profit. This one account. Wow. The company ended up going bankrupt. It was one of those dot com, like it was Ameriquest Mortgage. Remember the whole? Because two years later, with the whole, yeah. Um, so that worked out. So that's well, the two thousand eight. I mean, they they imploded, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. So you lost a big account and they said, Hey, you know, we need to, we need to look at this LOI again. Yeah. We tried negotiating it saying, well, we still want to sell at that price. And I was like, well, we can't do that. You know? And uh, so that was the only kind of bitter, bitter part of it from that perspective, from a negotiating perspective. And th- that was it. I mean, we, that was too big of a hit for them to just say, okay, we're still going to pay you the, the same number. Mm-hmm. So then it became a negotiating what's a fair, but it was pretty much whatever the multiple was minus the EBITDA from that account. It sounds like it wasn't so much. Uh, I lost why well, I lost the money. We lost $3 million in valuation, but I think it, yeah, it helps. I don't know. I was still on the fence ironically, but I think because of the, I think because of those, I think because that occurred made me realize nothing's for sure. You know, this is a, the whole burden hand thing really, you know, that really kicked in. It's like, okay, what if I did lose three or four accounts? What if that those technical issues dragged on another month or two? You know, a lot of our clients were obviously patients. We work through them, but I mean, you know, at some point they're going to, you know, if your, your business evaporates, what do you do? Yeah. So, so this losing this account, these technical issues made you realize that like that scared nothing's, nothing's for sure. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, it was, there still might've been a good chance I don't sell. I mean, psychologically, I remember saying I'm not selling. Um, and uh, those issues put me over. And again, that's why I, you know, I tell everybody and I th- even think to myself, put an offer out there. It's like when you're a salesperson, you're trying to sell someone a service and say, oh, they're happy with their existing vendor. It doesn't matter. Still call them, still send a proposal because guess what? If their vendor screws up, what you want is them to pick up the phone and say, who, hey, that guy was great that called me a couple months ago about that service. I'm going to call him. Now. Mm-hmm. Same thing when you're trying to buy a business, make the offer, go through the process because the, the, that entrepreneur, that business has a bad day. Oh, well, now things have changed. Now they have an exit. They have an alternative where they weren't thinking that otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some but people do. Some people have something bad and then put their business for sale. You can sniff that out if you're a buyer. Yeah, yeah. But in your, so in your case, you, you realize that nothing's for sure and that you've got a burden hand and you're going to, you're going to take it. Um, what, what changed for you? What was life like after the check hit your bank account? Not a good period. So the year, the year, did you say not a good period? No, no, not, not for me personally. No, that year of transition, working for someone else, seeing the stupid decisions they were making, fine. We go to the masters and have some, but poor, you know, besides that, um, you know, I felt that I was also just getting involved in the other companies where I wasn't because I was focused on an NCAA. So the other companies, and I think I kind of even messed up, you know, kind of disrupted them a little bit. I, I was, I had a, I had a hard, I had a hard time dealing emotionally with the sale. And I wept. I remember the first, the first at the Christmas party. So I sold in September, the December Christmas party, uh, you know, downtown, got a hotel room, stay there. And I remember with my wife just crying, crying my eyes out. What have I done? I sold my baby because, you know, you're at a Christmas party, there's hundreds of people there. You're emotionally, you're just an emotional high when you're, when I was always with my employees were the kickoff meetings or chairman's clubs. They were, those were emotional times. This is like my family, closer to my family in a lot of ways. I love spending time with the people that are in my business uh, more than anyone else because we have a common, we have a common goal, something to talk about of interest to me. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I can still talk about the small stuff that I talk with friends. I can still talk to sports with my employees, but we actually, we can talk about something that matters in my opinion. So I was really, yeah, I didn't buy anything. Um, that's one piece of, I would tell anyone that if it's enough, like you got to treat yourself to something after you sell your business. 
you know, not be frivolous necessarily, but I didn't do that, you know, badge of honor. Let's just keep going. Let's keep building these businesses for the future. But I should have treated myself to something. I remember, you know, it was always was, was my dream to, you know, get a membership at St. George. And I went and I was like, okay, let me go. And then ah, I was a waiting list. Nah, forget. It. I don't need to go join St. George. I didn't buy a fancy car. And, St. George uh, is a golf club in Toronto. That's quite prestigious. Yeah. So I like, yeah, I, I, re I regret uh, not, not doing that earlier. Some of those things are really done later, fortunately. Um, but I think it, I think the reward is a, is a special thing. Like, so, you know, I joined St. George later, but I think, man, if I just would have joined right after I sold my company, just a nice story would have been a nice feeling to do that, to reward myself with something. How That's did why you... I like getting gifts for people as opposed to just giving them money, right? Or a gift certificate. You know, actually, because that way they remember you when they open or use that gift. Uh, and and, and they, there's a relationship there as opposed to just money. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely heard uh, from past guests this notion of, you know, this 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 very incredible high that you know when this when the check clears and then and then a, a big drop. So I've I've heard that from others, and and I've heard that that sort of coming out of it is is really about finding a new kind of purpose, new project, mm -hmm. whether that's another business. What was it for you that got you out of that sort of low period? Yeah, once obviously the company started to scale and I was officially out of, you know, Premier and, you know, we start getting other offices and stuff. And, um, but, you know, then, then what I found post uh, when you have a company that's really succeeding and then you've got to, even if you do other things, you know, now the grind is not as exciting because <laughs> you had the momentum. You weren't grinding anymore. I mean, it's always a grind. You want things are going well, but, um, but I think that's when I got back to, you know, obviously this is thing and we start generating the wish group and marketing it and all that kind of stuff. So my new identity now is not Frank and enunciate. Now it's Frank wish group. Got it. And so for folks so who I'm want to be overall, you know, the peace of mind that came with it. Um, but I also wonder, man, how big would it have gotten, you know, how much would I, you know, would I be, would I be even wealthier and more happier today? I don't know. Or who knows, or maybe the company would have started to, to de decline and that would have been awful. It's like you're selling a high, right? Like you, you leave, like if you're an artist or a musician, you left them wanting more, you know, or you, you end a TV series when people, the audience still wants more. So that's kind of what I did. So maybe it's a good thing, right? All memories are good. It was all never a year of flattening out, flattening out or going in decline. So that's pretty special too. That's worth something, I think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So tell people where uh, they can reach you now. Uh, what's, is there a website to, or a LinkedIn? What, what's, what's best for people yeah. to reach you? Yeah, LinkedIn is just Frank Chinchuli, but uh, the website is uh, wishgroup.ca and uh, Instagram's at Frank Chinchuli as well. And right. And, and, and what is, bootstrap yeah, what does Wish Group do just in 30 seconds? Kind of what's the, what's the company? Do? Yeah. So Wish Group is a collection. It's the Holdco and it's a collection of uh, telecom media and HR businesses. So we're back in the teleconferencing business. So, you know, the Zoom, we compete with Zoom uh, and we are the largest uh, B2B uh, webinar virtual events company in the country. And we own some of the largest uh, privately held uh, uh, HR staffing companies in the country and digital marketing, and all types of other, uh, fun businesses there. So it's, it's essentially an, uh, turned into an entrepreneurial ecosystem, an entrepreneurial farm, not, a, not an incubator. We operate the businesses, but uh, very much, uh, you know, an environment where we invest in people and give equity to managers, and management teams, that sort of thing. A mini Berkshire Hathaway, it sounds like. Exactly. Or even like a Patterson group, maybe is another one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Work. 
Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, we'll put uh, we'll put the information about Wish in the show notes and and your the spelling of your surname uh, in the show notes so people can connect with you on LinkedIn. Frank, it was great to meet you. Great to uh, hear the story. Well, thanks for having me. It was uh, it was really exciting uh, taking a trip down memory lane. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.